Hello, and welcome to another installment of Eat Hair, Grow Hair, the podcast all about a world in which you need to eat hair to grow hair. I am your host, Benjamin Schultz, and I'm joined today by uh, my co-host and correspondent, Alex Duckles. Hello, Alex. Hello, Ben. I'm, I'm happy to be here back with what I think is going to be another great episode of EHGH. Yeah, I'm really excited today. We're going to talk about hats and wigs in this world, um, and I think... You have done a lot of research, and uh, what are you bringing to the table? I have. Well, I'm actually bringing uh, the longest report that I've ever put together. Wow. Um, I think that there's something something with hats and wigs in the world of Eat Hair, Grow Hair that is that really touched me. And I think that in our world, a lot of people don't think that hats and wigs are very different. But in the world of Eat Hair, Grow Hair, when you look at the history behind these two items, it's, it's very rich, uh, it's very complicated, and it's something that... You know, I hope that we can do justice to today. Yeah, I'm really excited to dive into the history of hats and wigs. Shall we play your piece? I think without further ado, let's let's jump right in. Ever been to a carnival? Well, then you might be familiar with a common sight. Get your hats here, hats for sale, ten hats for a dollar, get your hats here. It's a line we've heard all too often, and to us it might not seem spectacular at all. In our world, hats are everywhere. Go to the ballpark, hats. The supermarket, more hats. On the beach, they keep us shaded. In the jungle, they keep us safe. On the catwalk, they keep us looking chic. For us, the hat has been a staple accessory for thousands of years. Covering your head, we think nothing of it. If only it were so simple in the world of eat hair, grow hair. The alternate reality where, to many, hair is far too valuable to simply cover up. In EHGH, the first hat wasn't really a hat at all, but let's not get ahead of ourselves quite yet. Dating back millennia and spanning various global cultures, it was seen as sacrilege to try and cover one's head with anything but hair. The resource was so highly valued that, as it was said famously by the Romans, "'Tis better to go hairless than lessen mine own hair." The exceptions to covering hair were, of course, bat attack and volcanic eruption. Neither were commonplace during ancient times, nor are they commonplace today. Hair historians believe the very first hats to have been used in stage performances and magic acts during the Dark Ages, around 1,000 years ago. These first hats were woven out of hair itself, used for quick change effects as showmen wanted to appear with different hairstylings in immediate succession. Many of those who popularized such stunts were promptly burned at the stake. However, the trend was soon adopted by royalty, as a means to convince the masses that their ability to eat, grow, and style hair far exceeded normal human limitations. And thus the hat was first adopted into society. The term holds its roots in the Gaelic word hart, meaning an upside-down basket. The materials for these early hats began as only the highest quality hair available, often enhanced with preserving chemicals to give an impossibly glossy appearance. Could you call them wigs? No, they're not wigs although that is a very common mistake to make. The wig, actually an adaption of the word twig, was initially made of leafy items such as branches, leaves, and grass. The wig was first seen historically shortly after the early utilization of hats, however limited only to poorer communities. Wigs were initially seen as the playthings of children pretending to grow lengths of hair that were unrealistic for their social caste. The accessory would long serve as a symbol of wigotry and discrimination against the hair deprived, something that would continue for many generations to come, and as many could debate, still presents a leading issue today. Interestingly, though, 
the centuries to follow would see the wig and hat evolve with almost parallel, although entirely opposite, histories. As the hat became a more common accessory for nobility, the style eventually began incorporating non-hair items such as feathers, beads, or fish scales to further evolve the look of the time. Eventually, and quite ironically, these non-hair items took a dominant role. In almost a counterculture wave during the late 18th century, the upper class in London began popularizing hats that deliberately mimicked the appearance of early wig aesthetics. The wig industry itself became industrialized around the same time. The materials were still non-hair, mostly grasses and eventually a blend of various synthetics, but the appearance was becoming more and more convincing. Still, the wig served predominantly as a resource for the poor and hair-deprived, but the industry grew with such a clip that it was hard for the upper classes to ignore. While many had long suppressed the issues of segregation in the hair community, soon it would come to the vanguard of Western conversation. In 1877, a famed encounter in Brussels would take wig awareness into the modern era. The Prince of Belgium, an outspoken member of a royal house long affiliated with public wigotry, claimed that even with the improving technology, the wig would never be indistinguishable from human hair. In a bold show of courage, a young German lawyer challenged the prince to spot the difference between a wig wearer and a hair grower at the distance of 20 paces. As the story goes, the prince was unable to distinguish the difference and promptly threw himself off a bridge. In fits of celebration, the crowds proclaimed the lawyer a hero and the segregation of wig wearers and the hairless a thing of the past. Hats and wigs would continue to evolve together into the modern day, blending styles and statements and becoming accessories that many will wear with pride. Wigotry is undeniably still an issue that we need to take seriously in many communities. But by working hard together, hopefully it's an issue that we can truly rid from the world of EHGH for good. So the next time you put something on your head, think of the history behind both hats and wigs that brought us to where we are today. Oh, and that young German lawyer from the story? Well, he would continue to strive for greatness throughout his long life as the one we celebrate today as James Waterhouse Hairlock. To think such a momentous man first made his print on history, standing up for wig rights, paving the way for the freedom we all celebrate openly today. Thank you, Alex, for that great report. Um, you did a lot of research and uh, brought us some really interesting content there. Now, of course, everyone knows uh, James Waterhouse Hairlock, but uh, I did not realize that was his roots. So I, can you talk a little bit about um, where he went on from there? Oh, absolutely. I think that it's amazing to hear that such a tycoon of uh, industry and politics um, that we would have in Hairlock started with, I mean, it's a humble story, but he did amazing things. I mean, standing up for wig wearers back at that day and back at that time uh, was incredibly bold and many people had been ostracized or killed for much less. Um, but no, Hairlock was making a statement about equality and fairness. Uh, when he emigrated to the United States, he opened the very first wig factory. This was in uh, 1905. I have to check on the numbers. I don't have those in front of me. But from there, uh, it's the classic rags to riches story. I mean, the, the fame, the uh, drive for the, to the presidency, uh, all of that came out of someone who, you know, took hair and took wig rights very seriously. 
And I think people saw that in him. So interesting that someone that wasn't a natural-born citizen uh, became president. It really is. Oh, no, it absolutely is. And it's a testament to the public's opinion of him at the time. I w- I'm curious if he faced any repercussions, particularly in Brussels, after that incident with the royal prince. So there's a lot of mixed uh, evidence around that. I mean, there's lots in the in the royal records. I mean, it was a ro- royalty in the royal family that was impacted by this. But back then, it was a, a news spread by word of mouth, and his his story became legendary. I don't doubt that it was a lot more complicated than the story tells today. Uh, I don't doubt that. Uh, there were repercussions, or if Herlock actually was a member of a group of people that was doing this, and he himself wasn't necessarily in the limelight. Um, however, he's the one who came out of it with such a history, and in his biography, he does tell the story himself. So he was there. I do believe that he was there. But no, I think that as far as the the negative repercussions of the family, I think that it was much overshadowed by the changes in uh, public opinion towards wig wearers at the time. Now, we could go on talking about uh, Mr. Herlock for days, but let's dive right into hats. Um, I'm, I'm very curious about the kind of the evolution that they both had that seemed to kind of crisscross each other. Wigs um, and hats. Yeah, hats, you know, coming out of hair um, and then kind of shifting away from that as they went on. And then wigs coming out of twigs and uh, shifting more towards hair. I think that it's the two will always exist together. And I think that the parallels between the two, like I said in my report, have these roots in this counterculture that, you know, we, we see today. I mean, I think that hats today in, in youth are a statement of rebellion, a lot of times a statement of fashion, a statement of uh, individuality. And this was exactly the same case hundreds, if not maybe thousands of years ago. That's a bit of a brash statement on my part, but I think that it holds true. Yeah, and, and you talk about it as a... Uh counterculture statement, but also they served a very, um, both hats and wigs served a very uh, pragmatic purpose. Wigs especially. uh, I mean, I think that there are lots of people in hair-deprived and poor areas uh, today as well as in the past that needed hair. You know, a lot of people don't look at hair, especially those from our world, don't look at hair as something that is a necessity but I think that to many people it is. To many people it would be very hard to deny that you could go on and live a fully enriching life in this society without hair on top of your head. Yeah, and, and I'm curious, what is hair, uh, modern modern wigs, sorry, made out of today? Well, it's actually, I'm not surprised you made the mistake. I mean, hair and wigs are molecularly actually very similar. Hmm. Um, we're able to, I say we as in, the, the scientific community is able to synthesize wigs on such a level of fine detail that really they're only distinguishable under a microscope. Back in history, uh, it was fibers, nylon, that made up a lot of the wig products. Before that, it was, uh, like I said, grasses and, and plant product. But during the entire course of this history, there's always been a goal to, uh, for authenticity mm-hmm. and a goal to uh, mimic the hair that people can grow naturally and organically. Interestingly enough, that's, like you said before, the opposite direction that hats went in. Mm -hmm. Eventually, hats started to differentiate. Uh, First, with chemicals to being applied to actual hair. Second, with non-hair products. And today, with uh, cardboard, paper, uh, cloth, what have you. And I'm wondering, what would happen... This may be a silly question, excuse me. Uh, Can you eat a wig? It's a bit of a silly question. Um, You cannot. 
But uh, I mean, you, actually, no, I, I should backtrack. Of course you can. Uh, the wig would not grow out of your head. Okay. Um, the same uh, might not be true for early hats, uh, especially the ones that were made originally out of hair. They're very aged, but I think that, and, and, and very valuable in museums, but I think that if one were to eat one of the older hats, sure, you, it would absolutely grow uh, like normal hair would. So is that where we get the expression, uh, eat my hat? It, it is. It is, actually. Um, the meaning has kind of changed. Yeah. It originally meant something uh, akin to an atrocity, uh, eat my hat, uh, and go to the streets is the full expression. Um, but yes, it's been shortened and, and modified over the years. And to go way back in the history of hats and wigs, uh, can you talk to me a little bit more about... Uh, volcanoes and bats. You, you mentioned that mm -hmm. in your piece, uh, uh, hats being a protective item. Yeah, not two items that you think to be often put in the same sentence, volcanoes and bats. But no. in this case, um, no, it was, as the as the Romans said, uh, the two, well, the only two circumstances in which someone could cover their own hair. Mm -hmm. um, you know, back then, hair was seen even more so as a status symbol than it is today. Uh, so to cover it, in any way, shape, or form, was seen as utter sacrilege. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, of course, volcanoes back then were one of the most feared natural disasters around um, and were seen as kind of the one exception to that. Bat attack actually came in a couple centuries later uh, once bats were introduced to mainland Europe. Uh, since then, again, it was public fear mostly. Mm -hmm. Neither of these, like I said in my report, were common occurrences, but it was the paranoia that surrounded them that said, okay, under these circumstances, yes, you may cover your hair. Almost as though the, ro uh, the royal classes were saying there are things that are more important than showing your hair, and that is preserving your hair. Mm -hmm. I just want to make a little note. You'll listeners might hear a little rain in the background. Uh, it's raining where we're recording. Some stormy but weather, just... but I hope that's, you know... Up from above, they're saying that we're doing good work. Yeah, absolutely. I'm also wondering, kind of going off the Roman uh, bit, are there hat and wig laws and regulations today? Uh, well, hat law, not so much. I mean, most hat laws that were on the books actually have been abolished, I mean, since the mid-1900s. Um, so there really aren't any regulations on that industry. Uh, wig laws are a little bit more intense. Um, like you had mentioned before, wigs being made out of non-hair product, um, that's a very strong regulation. Uh, there's a lot of testing in place to make sure that there is no human hair or animal hair being used in wigs. Um, and actually very recently, uh, with the advancements of science and the synthetic products becoming more similar to hair, there's been a lot of more, a lot more regulations that have come into place. Uh, and that's why the CDH, um, the Center for Disease and Hair, uh, has been growing so much in the past few years and is expected to grow moving forward still just to keep a regulatory body in check of the wig industry. Great. Um, with that, I think we're going to go to our listener question. Mm -hmm. All right, this one's coming from Abby, age 12, and she says, um, I'm eating hair, but nothing's happening. When can I see some effects? So this uh, brings us to a really important point uh, yes. I mean, thank you for writing in, Abby. Absolutely. It's a fantastic question. Um, but Ben, yeah, continue. Um, yeah. The eat hair, grow hair is an imaginary world, and we, we really cannot stress this enough. Please don't eat your hair. Right. Uh, if you do want to eat your hair, uh, talk to your parents. Um, talk yeah. to your doctor. I think that you can get a lot of information on why not to eat your hair. 
Uh, but then hopefully turn that interest and enthusiasm around to our podcast and to yeah. the community that we build. I think that, uh, you know, we are not a community for people who want to eat their own hair, but we're a community of people who are interested in people who want to eat their own hair. That's a very important distinction. Well, Abby, thank you for writing in. I hope everything works out well on your own side. Um, get some food, young lady. Uh, not hair. Not hair. And um, with that, Ben, I think that we can turn our sights to next week's episode, which I know you've been talking about off the air for quite some time, and that's the Hair Olympics. Yeah, I'm very excited to dive into this uh, topic. Um, you know, this is where the world of sports meets the world of culture and hair, and uh, we're going to have a whole global look at the world of competitive hair eating. And it's it's a Hair Olympic year, actually, 2016 in Quebec. Yep. So... Uh, I know that, you know, in the world of Eat Hair, Grow Hair, it's a, it's a hot topic, and we look forward to, to really sharing more of that information with you guys. Uh, and as always, thank you so much for joining us in this installment of Eat Hair, Grow, grow Hair. hair.